Matthew chapter 21, we're going to read verses 12 through 17 as our first start of our study. Matthew 21, verses 12 through 17. It says, And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read, Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Now, we left off in these verses at the end of our study last week. I tried to include them but soon realized that there was too much here to rush through it. So if you were with us last week at the end of the study, I apologize for how we came to a quick stop. I wanted to finish the notes that I had and halfway into it realized I shouldn't have started this section. And that's what we're going to do is pick up where I should have started or left off last week. In verse 13, we see Jesus give quotes from two Old Testament passages, one from Isaiah and one from Jeremiah. Now in doing so, he's pointing to a coming day when Jew and Gentile alike will be worshiping him together, him together in the temple. Now, let me just take you there. Go to Isaiah 56, uh, and I'll read to you from verses 1 through 8. As you're turning to Isaiah 56, verses 1 through 8, I want to just show you that for years I read that section of Scripture where Jesus says, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer. And I knew that the first part was from Scripture. I always just assumed that when he said, You've made it a den of robbers, he was just making a little commentary, as you're about to see when he said, you've made it a den of robbers, he was quoting from another passage of Scripture with a different meaning. And that's what we're going to get to tonight. The first passage of Scripture, Isaiah 56, verses 1 through 8. Again, it's a prophecy about the coming kingdom when Jesus is going to rule and reign, the temple's going to be in Jerusalem, and Jew and Gentile together are going to be able to worship God freely in this temple. Look at what it says in Isaiah 56, verse 1. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come, and my righteousness be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this, and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I'll give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Now, for those of you that got a little scared because he says, well, they got to keep the Sabbaths. Remember, the book of Hebrews teaches us very clearly that to keep the Sabbath is to put full faith in Jesus Christ and not to rest in any of our own work. We're to rest from our labors and put our faith in Jesus Christ. That's fulfilling the Sabbath. The Sabbath was a picture of resting from your work 
and trusting in God in the same way. Those of us who through faith in Jesus Christ are saved because we don't think we've earned it. We're not getting to heaven because we've done anything of our own. We're ceasing trying to get to heaven on our own strength. We rest in him. That's how you observe the Sabbath. What it was pointing to was Christ. Now, jump over to Jeremiah chapter 7. So he's just in the first thing that he says, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. He quotes about the coming kingdom. But then in Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 1 through 15, you're going to see that Jesus also, almost in the same breath, says to them, oh, and by the way, this temple is going to be destroyed. And quoting from Jeremiah, he was also prophesying about the soon destruction of the temple because of their disobedience and rejection of him. Go with me to Jeremiah 7 and look at verses 1 through 15. It says, The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word, and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if truly, if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly ex- execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I'll let you dwell in this place in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. And now, because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen, and when I called you, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name in which and in which you trust, and to the place that I gave to you and to your fathers as I did to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight as I cast all your kinsmen and all the offspring of Ephraim. So don't miss what Jesus is saying when he says you've made it a den of robbers. He's quoting from a prophecy in Jeremiah 7 where God says, don't think the temple's going to be here all the time and you're good. Because if you continue to walk in disobedience to me, I'll destroy this place and remove you from this land just like I did to those people at Shiloh. So as Jesus is cleaning the temple out in this last week of his life here on the earth in the flesh. He, he says to them, my house shall be called a house of prayer, prophesying about the day when he comes and sets up the kingdom and Jew and Gentile alike will be worshiping him in the new temple. But then he says, but you've made it a den of robbers. And in doing so, he's hinting at and pointing to the fact that the temple will be destroyed. Go to Luke 21. Look at verses just 5 and 6. We're going to deal more with this as we get a little further on in Matthew. And so we won't deal too much with it right now. But in Luke 21, verses 5 and 6, look at what Jesus says. This is during that last week that he's in Jerusalem. And it says, While some were speaking of the temple and how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things that you see, 
The days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. He's talking about the destruction, coming destruction of the temple. And again, if any of you know your history, you'll know that it was just covered in gold. And when the Romans came and destroyed the city and burnt the temple and everything there, the gold melted. And to get to all the gold that had gone into all the cracks, they pulled every stone apart. Not one was left on another to get to all the gold, just like Jesus prophesied. When he said, you've made it a den of robbers, they had no idea probably that he was pointing out to the fact that he was going to destroy the temple. But we also, in the verses that we looked at here in verses 12 through 17, we see Jesus being confronted because the children, actually in the Greek, it means young boys. Most likely, these were 12, 13-year-old boys were having their first Passover that they were allowed to go to. These young boys, these young children were praising him and calling him the Messiah. Look again at verse 14. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? They, the, 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 the chief priests knew that these kids were saying, you're the Messiah. You're the Messiah. And he says, they said to him, they said, do you know what these kids are saying? Are you listening to what they're saying? I mean, it's one thing for you to fool these adults, but if you're going to fool these kids. And Jesus' response is very interesting. In response, he takes them to Psalm chapter 8, and he quotes, Out of the mouth of, mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have ordained praise. What I want you to do is go with me to Psalm 8. Because in pointing them to Psalm 8, Jesus does something that many people have missed. Have you ever heard anybody say, Jesus never claimed to be God? You ever heard people try that one? Even though the scripture is very, very clear that he did when he said, before Abraham was born, I am. I, there, he, he wasn't afraid to claim that he was God. But in quoting from Psalm 8, I want you to look closely and notice who this psalm is about. It is a whole psalm of praise to God, and it is clearly a psalm of praise to God himself. Look at Psalm 8. We'll read the whole chapter. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes. That's the part he quoted, to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him? And by the way, that him is plural. And the son of man that you care for him. By the way, that second him is singular. For you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, that's singular, and then the, heaven, the, the him part is singular, a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him, singular, with glory and honor. You have given him, singular, dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So let me ask you tonight, who was this psalm praising? God. It was praising God. And Jesus said, when they said, do you realize what these people are saying? And Jesus said, let me ask you a question. Have you never read Psalm 8? By the way, I love that. Because these are the people that had prided themselves on the fact that they had memorized most of the Bible. And he says, have you never read Psalm 8? Where it says, out of the mouths of infants and children, you've ordained praise. 
Don't miss this. By pointing them to Psalm 8, he was claiming to be God. He goes, yeah, I hear what they're saying. And it matches up exactly with the prophecy in Psalm 8, where the scripture says that they would praise, children would praise God. Jesus was claiming deity. Now, by the way, the Hebrew writer tells us that this psalm was pointing to Jesus as well. Remember how I showed you that the first hymn was plural, but the rest of them are singular? Go with me to Hebrews chapter 2. Look at verses 5 through 9. <clears throat> and so, yes, you're right, Sheila. It was also pointing to Jesus in Psalm 8. It's pointing to God the Father and to Jesus the Son. Hebrews chapter 2, look at verses 5 through 9. It says, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we're speaking, it's been testified somewhere, what is man that you're mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? For you've made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. By the way, where's the Hebrew writer quoting from? Psalm 8. Oh, by the way, did you notice how the Hebrew writer said it's written somewhere? Some of you freak out because you can't call up the verse exactly where it is. Relax, the Hebrew writer did it a couple of times. And uh, he quoted from Psalm 8 here. But look at what it says next. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. Now, at present, we don't yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely who? Namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So here the Hebrew writer even confirms that this prophecy was pointing to Jesus. So when Jesus says to them, have you not read what it says? That the children would praise God? They're praising him. Oh, and they're praising me because that psalm points to me. By the way, everything we're looking at tonight, you're going to see is, Lord willing, if we get there to, in my notes, going to all tie together. But I also want you to notice how Jesus keeps giving everyone just enough, enough information to understand and to believe if you're willing to search the scriptures to see if they're true. You notice... We pointed out that he was claiming deity, but I had to point it out to you. Not everybody catches that. He was doing it, but it's available to who? The ones who have ears to hear and eyes to see. He's pointing out truth. He's quoting from Isaiah 56. He's quoting from Jeremiah 7. But you're only going to get it if you, one, search the scriptures and know what they say. And are humble enough to say, all right, you're saying something here. What are you saying? I want you to understand this. If people are willing to humble themselves and to see if these things are true, God will reveal himself. If people don't really want to know, it'll be hidden from them. That's what the scripture says. You write this down. Look at it later on. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. It says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. For one must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who diligently Seek him. You, got a, you have an attitude that says, I'm going to sit back and God's got to prove himself to me. Have fun. You're not going to do too well. But if you humble yourself and believe that he exists, because the Bible says he's given you enough that you're without excuse through creation. He's given you enough to know that he's there. But he's made it so that you have to humble yourself and say, I know the world says he doesn't exist. And I know my flesh doesn't want him to exist because I'd rather be in charge. But deep down, I know he exists if you humble yourself and say, Lord, are you there? 
is this true? And you go to the scriptures and you humble yourself. He will reveal himself to you. Let me give you an example of this. Go with me to John chapter 20. You're going to say, Jim, I don't know how this ties together. Stick with me and I'll show you. Go to John chapter 20. Look at verses 24 through 29. This is after Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Now Thomas, one of the twelve disciples, one of the twelve apostles even, called, he was called the twin. He wasn't with them when Jesus came the first time. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. Folks, let me say something to you. Why did Jesus show up and reveal himself to Thomas? Because remember, I told you, if you humble yourself and you're wanting to hear the truth, and you're wanting to know the truth, God will reveal Himself to those who diligently seek Him. How come in this situation when Thomas said, unless I see His hand and touch His side, I'm never going to believe? How come Jesus revealed Himself to him? The answer is in that eight days later, He's still in the upper room. If He had an attitude that said, I don't want to believe, I'm done, and He walked away, poor Thomas would have been blinded. But he humbled himself, and even though he struggled with the fact that they all saw him, and he didn't, and he was struggling with it, he wanted it to be true. And so he was still there in that room eight days later, and because he wanted it to be true, and he understood that God reveals it, if you humble yourself, he stuck around. And because of that, Jesus showed up and gave him exactly what he needed to believe. Listen to me, folks. I don't know who's listening online, who's listening right now, who's listening live, who's listening recorded, listened later on. If you humble yourself, God knows you so well because he knit you in your mother's womb. He knows how to reveal himself in a way that you will understand. But you have to humble yourself and say, Lord, I want this to be true. God, are you there? What does the scripture say? And you humble yourself. You watch. He will reveal himself to you. Go to Luke 19, though. Look at verses 41 and 42. In Luke chapter 19, verses 41 and 42. We read this last week. And when Jesus drew near and he saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes. Did you catch that? Remember, Jesus had been coming. He'd been there for three years. He'd been prophesying to them, as you're going to see in just a little bit, in many ways, revealing to them over their history the truth. And he himself came in the flesh. He gave them scripture. He showed them the truth. But they were not willing to believe. We're going to see in a little bit lots of different reasons why. But just hear this. God will give you enough. He'll give you enough. But you have to humble yourself and say, show me the rest. Show me the rest. I want to believe. And he will. He will. All right, go back to Matthew chapter 21. Let's look at verses 18 through 22. Remember, at the end of our last section, he went to Bethany that first night, and he lodged there. Now in the morning, 
Matthew 21, verse 18. In the morning as he was returning to the city, Jesus is returning to the city, he became hungry and seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. Now when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. We're going to take some time on this section tonight as well. And like I say, Lord willing, we're going to hopefully get all the way to verse 32 as well. But let's spend a little bit of time unpacking this. Now, before I teach in on this Jesus cursing the fig tree and then what he said to his disciples, I want you to understand that knowing a little bit of the context of Jesus' cursing the fig tree and knowing a little bit of background about horticulture and fig trees will help us interpret what happened here. And I'm sharing this because that's helped me too in my study. Because I've often wrestled with this because as you're going to see in one of the accounts, Mark's account, the scripture says that it wasn't the season for figs. So why is Jesus cursing the fig tree if it didn't produce figs if Jesus knew it wasn't the season for figs? That's hopefully where I come in. Fig trees, first of all, did not produce fruit until after three years, sorry, back it up, three years after they were planted. If you plant a fig tree, it won't produce fruit for at least three years after it's been planted. That'll help in a little bit later on at another passage we're going to look at. But then once it had been three years since it was planted, figs would produce twice a year. Now, this wasn't the season for figs. Go to Mark chapter 11. The season for figs is actually in June, which is really over a month away from where they are at this time. Go to Mark chapter 11 and look at verses 12 through 14. Mark's account gives us a little bit of information as well. It says, on the following day, Mark chapter 11, verse 12, on the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, Jesus, and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. All right, so Jesus sees a fig tree in leaf, and he goes up to it looking for something. There's no figs. He says, may no one ever eat from you again. Now, interestingly enough, we just saw that it wasn't the season for figs. Well, the figs come out when the leaves come out. When a fig tree is going to produce figs, it will produce leaves, and the figs come with the leaves. So if there are leaves, there should be figs. Here's a fig tree that's producing leaves, like it's going to produce figs, but no figs. In other words, this fig tree had the appearance of being fruitful, but really wasn't. Does that sound familiar? Let me just, before we get any deeper, let you know that the scripture says false teachers are described in the same way. They're described, I'm going to show you two places in scripture, as people who appear to be fruitful and helpful, but they're really not. Go to Jude, verse 12. In Jude, verse 12, you see a description of false teachers. And just in this one verse, look at how they're described. It says, these are hidden reefs at your love feasts, 
By the way, a hidden reef, you know, is something you didn't see, but boy, when you ran into it, it did a lot of damage. But they all, as they feast with you without fear, they're shepherds feeding themselves. By the way, a shepherd's job is to do what? Feed you, feed the sheep, but they fed themselves. They're waterless clouds. By the way, it's, some of you might not be able to hear this online, but it's thundering pretty good outside, and I can see out the window that it's raining as well. When clouds come and it looks like they're going to rain, you expect it to rain. But if the clouds come and there's no rain, it looks like it's about to do something, but it doesn't. Looks like it's about to be helpful, but it's not. It looks like it's about to be fruitful, but it's not. So here in Jude, the false teachers are described as those who appear to be helpful, but they're not. Now go with me to Matthew chapter 3. Look at verses 7 through 10. In Matthew chapter 3, verses 7 through 10. John the Baptist said, he said, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And don't presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God's able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that doesn't bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So the Pharisees were coming to his baptism, and he said, You know what? You may look like you're coming here for the right reasons, but I know your hearts. I want to see some evidence that you're for real before I baptize you. Produce fruit in keeping with your supposed leaf-producing repentance. So Jesus sees a fig tree that's giving off the appearance that it's supposed to be producing fruit. And when he looks, there's no fruit. Jesus wasn't acting impetuously out of anger, folks. He was giving an object lesson. Because Israel is often described in the Old Testament as God's fig tree. As you're going to see through our study tonight and from the following weeks as we continue on in Matthew, the Israel's described in many ways. Another one you're going to see in time is a vineyard. We'll hint at that a little bit tonight. But he describes Israel as a vineyard. He describes them as a fig tree. And the fig tree is a picture of the nation of Israel. Let me just give you a couple examples of that. Go to Hosea chapter 9. Hosea chapter 9. That one's easy to find if you know where Daniel is. It's right after Daniel. Go to Hosea, but go to chapter 9 and look at verse 10. In Hosea chapter 9, verse 10, the scripture says, Like grapes in the wilderness I found Israel, like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season I saw your fathers, but they came to Baal Peor and consecrated themselves to the thing of shame and became detestable like the thing they loved. In other words, he saw Israel as a fig tree. But go to Joel chapter 1. It's even more clear. Keep turning to the right there in Hosea. Turn over to Joel and look at chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Bethuel. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it, and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. What the cutting locusts left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. 
For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are like lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my what? My fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. So here we see the prophecy says that this judgment's coming against the nation of Israel. But how is Israel described? As his fig tree. We're going to again see Jesus use a description of Israel as a fig tree later on in our study as we get further on in the next few weeks. But for tonight, I want you to understand that when Jesus is cursing the fig tree, he's not acting out of anger and frustration because it didn't have fruit. He sees a fig tree that's appearing to produce fruit, but not producing fruit. And because they, God's fig tree, Israel, were acting like they would respond and produce fruit. What had they just been saying the day before? Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! We believe! But Jesus knew that's just leaves. That has the appearance of responding, but there's really no fruit. He knew they wouldn't. He knew they wouldn't believe or produce fruit. And so he was predicting judgment on them that also was predicted in the Old Testament and the New. Go to Isaiah 51. And as you're about to see, this prophecy about the coming judgment is because of unfruitfulness. Isaiah 51. Look at verses 1 through 7. Sorry, not Isaiah 51. Isaiah 5, verses 1 through 7. Thank you for your patience and my bad eyes. Isaiah 5, verses 1 through 7. Let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So here he said, I planted this vineyard. I planted this fig tree. And it produced no fruit. Gave the appearance that it would, but it didn't. And so Jesus is prophesying in the cursing of the fig tree what the Old Testament said was going to happen to Israel. Go to Luke chapter 13. All of a sudden, a passage of Scripture that some of you might know pretty well is all of a sudden going to go, oh, I get it now. Go to Luke 13. Look at verses 6 through 9. And Jesus told this parable. Luke 13, verse 6. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. 
Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. How long did it take after a fig tree was planted to produce fruit? Three years. But then it was time for it to produce. How long had Jesus been on the earth doing his ministry? Three years, and it was time for it to produce fruit. And by the way, if you know the history of Israel, when they rejected Jesus, they stayed in the land a little longer. It was in AD 33 that he died. It wasn't until AD 70 that they were destroyed and removed from the land. So he gave them more than three years. He gave them more time. But he told them a parable. He said, I came to this fig tree. It's supposed to be producing fruit by now. And the guy says, look, give it another year. He says, okay. But if it doesn't produce fruit, cut it down. What did Jesus say to them when he said, you've made it a den of robbers? He took them back to the prophecy that said, don't rest in the fact that you got this temple. Because I can do to this place just like I did because of people's disobedience at the time of Shiloh. Go to Luke 20. Luke 20, verses 9 through 18. In Luke chapter 20, verse 9, again, this is Jesus teaching during the final week of his life, between where we are studying tonight in Matthew 21 and his crucifixion. In Matthew 20, sorry, Luke 20, verses 9 through 18, and Jesus began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and lit it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I'll send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is their heir. Let us kill him and so that the inheritance may be ours. And when they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He'll come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Now when they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, Then what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus again told him, because of your rejection of me, the son, you're going to be destroyed. But I also want you to notice how Jesus' disciples noticed the withering of the fig tree. We saw in Matthew that it said that it happened at once. Go back to Mark. And you'll see that Mark gives us a little bit more information. The disciples don't realize that the fig tree withers until the next day. Matthew reads like it happened right in front of them, but that's why you got to put all the Gospels together to get the proper timeline. Go to Mark chapter 11. We've already read verses 12 through 14. I'm going to read it to you again. Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 14 to kind of set the stage. But all of the Gospels keep pointing, that bring out the story. They bring out the disciples noticing. We see the disciples heard it. We see that the disciples noticed it. Look at Mark 11, verses 12 through 14. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, Jesus was. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. 
And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Jump over to verse 20 of chapter 11. Now as they passed by in the morning, this is the next day, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Now, it's interesting to me that Jesus' purpose, as we've been pointing out, is to make a statement about the nation of Israel and how they're pre pretending to produce fruit, but they're really not. And he curses the fig tree as that prophecy, yet the disciples notice it. And Jesus doesn't take this opportunity to teach about the fig tree in Israel and all that stuff we've looked at. Jesus takes it in a different direction. He actually teaches, uses this to teach them about faith and believing and praying and receiving. Now, part of that, I believe, is because in Jesus' mind, Israel's being dropped off. He's now focusing where? On his disciples and getting them ready for what's to come in the church age. You're going to see that as we study on. And he goes and he's preparing his disciples in the upper room and all that. He's talking about what's to come and the coming Holy Spirit. And he's now focusing on these guys and teaching them about the church age and what's to come. But I don't want to just skip over this. Because if we're all honest, we look at this and we say, boy, that sure looks like name it and claim it, doesn't it? I mean, if you just say it and believe it, It'll happen. And I've heard too many Christians even say to me, if you just speak it, it comes to fruition. Be careful. Let your doctrine be from the whole of Scripture, yet at the same time, don't be one of these people that misses out on the power of God because you don't understand something. Folks, there's a balance here, and I want to show you from Scripture. I hope we can get there tonight to finish it. We probably won't get to verse 32 tonight. But in the time we have left, I want to show you how the scripture teaches as a whole about what Jesus is saying here, that there is more power available to us who believe than we realize as Christians, and we're missing out on a lot that God wants to do through us and in our lives, yet we're going to keep from going to an unbiblical realm that unfortunately has been done over the years. And we'll prayerfully hope the power stays on through this rest of the study as the lightning continues, and I'm hearing flickering in the electricity here in this building which they've been having trouble since they had a lightning strike here a few weeks ago. All right, so Jesus takes their astonishment about the fig tree withering as an opportunity to teach on the power of faith. Now remember, faith cannot begin with us. Faith is only faith if it's rooted in what God has said. Write this down, look at it later on. Romans chapter 10, verse 17, if I get you started, you'll, under, you'll be able to finish it for me. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Don't miss that. Go real quickly to Hebrews chapter 11. Go to Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to look at verses 1 through 12. But I want you to understand, as we talk about faith, you have to have a biblical definition of faith. Faith can, is not faith if it starts with you. In other words, I believe something so strongly, it has to be true, is not faith if you're the one who said it. Faith is only faith if it's in what God has said. If what Jesus has said is what you're believing in, then it can be faith. Do you understand? So if, if it's something God hasn't said, and you believe it, is that faith? No. 
Because faith begins by hearing what God has said. Go to Hebrews chapter 11, the definition of faith. Look at what it says. It says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their commendation. Now, before we go any further, if you just take that verse, it, again, you can make it say, hey, that's hoping in something I haven't seen, believing in something I'm convicted about. Don't build your theology from a verse. Keep reading. All right? By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. By faith, we believe that everything we see was made by God's word, by, he, by him speaking it, speaking it, correct? It didn't happen by evolution and all this stuff that they try to teach. We believe and we know that we're confident that it was because God just spoke it. How do you know that? Because the science proved it? How do you know by the word of God, if you go back, and I don't have the time to take you there, you go back to Genesis chapter 1, you want to have some fun, take a highlighter and just mark every time in chapter 1 how many times it says God in just the first chapter of the Bible. It will blow your mind. I actually did it one time. If you go from chapter 1 into the first couple of verses of chapter 2 when he finishes the creation account, God put his name in there 32 times. In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God. And then God said it was good. And then God saw all that he had made. And then God, folks, God is the one who's told us that he did it. And our faith is in what he has said. He then goes on and he says, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And though his, through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. And so, in other words, by the way, if you know anything about the whole Cain and Abel thing, Abel's sacrifice was accepted because his heart was full trust of God. He gave him the best of what he had. People say, well, his was a blood sacrifice, and that's why his was accepted and Cain's wasn't. No, the Old Testament law hadn't many been given until hundreds of, hundreds of years later by the time of Moses. We also know when the law came, there were grain sacrifices and grain offerings. Abel's wasn't accepted because his was blood and Cain's wasn't blood. Abel's was accepted because the scripture says that God saw that he gave his best. He gave the fat, the first, you know, the first of his flock. Cain gave some of what he had. And he, God responded to his faith because he believed that God said, if you give it to me, I will take care of you. And then what God teaches us in the tithe? Give me the first 10% and watch me take that other 90% and multiply it. And we trust him and we give him first because he said he would take care of us and our faith is in what he said. And there's no backup plan. There's no parachute. Then he goes to Enoch. Look at Enoch. Verse 5. By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Now again, if you go back and look at the small account we have in Genesis of Enoch, all it says about him in the two verses that we have about him is this. It says it twice. Enoch walked with God. But you want a biblical definition of faith? And I'm keeping a, having a hard time not preaching my message on that because I have a whole message on those verses right there on how faith doesn't begin until God has spoken. Faith is only in what God has said. And you're going to see that come out now in the rest of this section. Faith doesn't have a backup plan and has no parachute. We so trust what God has said, we don't cover our rear ends. And thirdly, Faith walks with God every single day. You don't just trust him to take care of your heaven, and then you, you trust him every 
day of your life. And the Bible's teaching us about faith. But now watch closely as I keep reading now. I'm not going to stop and preach the rest of the passage. Watch closely at how faith is in what God has promised and what God has said. It says, without faith it's impossible to please God. Verse 6, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah being warned by God. I highlighted that in my Bible. God spoke. Being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. What was, what was his faith in? What God had said. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called out to go to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same what? Promise. So in other words, why did Abraham leave his family? Because he just trusted that God's going to take care of him? No, God told him to go, and there he trusted that God was going to take care of him because he was obeying what God had said. Keep reading. Verse 10, For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And by faith Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past age, since she considered him faithful, who had what? Promised. Therefore from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of the sand by the seashore. Sarah didn't conceive because she wanted a baby so bad, she just believed it was going to happen. She had faith that God had said. By the way, when she first heard it, did she have faith when she first heard it? <laughs> no, she laughed. That's why the baby's name is Isaac. But God said, no, I meant it. And she believed. Listen to me, folks. This is important. If you know what God has said, and you believe it, and you don't doubt, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. That's what Jesus is teaching if you know what the Father has said, and you don't doubt, it's going to happen. But you have to believe Him and don't doubt. Go to James chapter 1. Look at verses 5 through 8. You're in Hebrews. Turn over one book to the book of James. Chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. It says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. You've heard me use this illustration before, but it works so perfectly, I'm going to share it again. I was teaching on this at a men's conference, and a man came up to me afterwards and he said, Jim, I tried what you said. I asked God for wisdom. He didn't give it. It doesn't work. I said, that's because you didn't believe that he would give it to you. He said, no, I really did believe that God was going to speak and he was going to show me. I prayed, I waited, I asked for God for wisdom. He didn't give me wisdom. It doesn't work. I said, that's because you didn't believe that he would give it to you. And I, he goes, no, you can't say that. You don't know my heart. You can't make a judgment about me when you don't know what's going on inside of me. He said, I really believed that God would tell me. I waited, I had a situation and I prayed and God didn't answer I said, it's because you didn't believe that he would speak. He goes, I'm about to punch you in your mouth. Why do you keep saying that? I said, because if you really believed that God would speak, you wouldn't have given him a timetable. See, you believed that he would speak in the period that you gave him. And God knew you would have given him a timetable. And he said, 
Yeah, good luck putting me on your timetable. By the way, has anybody else tried to put God on your timetable? How does that work? Never does, does it? It almost seems like he makes it longer now, doesn't he? I said, listen, if you believe that God would speak, if he doesn't speak for 10 years, you're fine because you believe that God's going to speak. He said, oh, I get it. See, God knows your heart. And you say, I believe. And he says, no, no, you really don't. I'll die for you. Actually, you're going to deny you know me three times for the rooster crows. Real faith is knowing what he said and believing that it's going to happen. He gets to determine the when. Exactly. Look how long it took for God to speak to Job through that process. You're right. Go to 1 John chapter 5. That's why this whole teaching on faith and believing, 1 John chapter 5 has a qualifier in it. 1 John chapter 5, look at verses 14 through 15. He says, and this is the confidence that we have towards God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we've asked of him. Doesn't that sound like what Jesus said in our passage? Ask, don't doubt, and if you ask and you don't doubt, you'll have what you ask for. Again, did God say it? Or did I come up with this? You understand, that you have to wrestle with. But if he said it, it's according to his will. Now, let me just say this real quick. I think many of us, and I'm talking, when I say us, I'm talking especially to us Baptists. We have a tendency sometimes to really miss out on a lot that God wants to do because we don't really believe in the power of God. We've got God in our box, and anything outside of that box we're uncomfortable with. And so there are believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, who have much more faith than us because they really believe God will do stuff. Now, yes, there are brothers and sisters in Christ who have turned it into, I said it, God has to do it, and God's big enough. He can handle them too and teach them how, you know, even though they prayed, that person still died. That's not our job to correct our brothers and sisters. What I want to say is to you listening, is your Heavenly Father saying, ask me? Ask me? The book of James says, you ask and don't receive because you ask with the wrong motives. But right before that, he says, you don't receive because you don't ask. He's going to deal with your heart. And in the process of you asking, he's going to actually show you some stuff. But Jesus is not teaching that if we want something bad enough, all we have to do is ask and believe it. That would actually go against Scripture. Not only against Scripture, I'm going to show you, it's also against Christ's own example himself. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We're going to close with this tonight. We're not going to get into Matthew 21, 23 through 32. That's where we'll pick up next week. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, look at verses 7 through 10. Paul's just been talking about a man that had been blessed by God to have visions and to see heaven, third heaven, paradise. It's obvious he's talking about himself. He, he says, I know a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. And how we know that he was talking about himself is in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, he says this. He says, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to harass me, 
to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Now, Paul said that this thorn in his flesh, and we don't know what it is. There are lots of people that want to throw what they think it is. And folks, don't waste your time because if God wanted us to know, he would have told us. So just leave it at that. But whatever it was, Paul, and by the way, don't you think Paul had believing faith? Paul had God done a few miracles through Paul, raising the dead, that kind of stuff, healing people. Paul knew how to pray in faith. Paul pleaded three times with God that this would go away. And God says, um, it's not my will. It doesn't matter how much you believe it, how much you want it. If it's not his will, you don't have it. Are you okay with that? Well, you better be. Because the reason we're going to heaven is because Jesus prayed something too, and the Father said no. Go to Matthew 26. We'll close with this tonight. Matthew 26, verses 36 through 46. I know the people that are in the room tonight are saying, you can keep going because it is pouring outside and we're not going anywhere. But the people online are saying, no, he can be done. He can be done. It's dry in our house and on our lazy boys. Matthew 26, look at verses 36 through 46. And by the way, I'm glad you're with us. Don't feel like I was judging you at all. Enjoy the lazy boy. Matthew 26, verses 36 through 46. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, not what I want, but what you want. And he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Do you think Jesus had enough faith to, if he believed that it, it could happen? Of course he does. But his prayer was, I want what you want. Some of you are asking God for something you want really badly. That's not, that's not a bad thing. But have your prayer be couched with, but you're God and I'm not. If you say yes, I'll believe you, and you get to determine when. If you say no, then that's best. And I'm going to ask you to give me the grace to be okay with you saying no. And aren't we glad that the Father told Jesus no? By the way, that was a question. Aren't you glad the Father told Jesus no? Then be okay if he tells you no once in a while. How many people 
There might be some listening right now, and I want you to hear me because it's never too late. God will call you. He's drawing you. Till you die, it's too late. But some of you have gotten mad at God because you prayed something and you asked Him and you wanted it really bad and Mama died anyway. And you walked away from God. You're mad at Him. But He told His own son no. And we have a worship service every week to celebrate it. It's time that you humble yourself and say, God, you're God and I'm not. I don't want a God that only does what I want. That makes me God. I want a God that knows what's right and what's wrong and what's best, and I submit myself to you afresh and anew. If you're his, come back. If you've been that prodigal son and you've just run off and just denied him, he's waiting on the porch for you to come back and say, I'm sorry. I humble myself and I come back and say, you get to call the shots in my life. And he knows your heart, and if it's sincere, he'll welcome you back and throw a party. The question is, Do you believe that he'll do it if he said he will? And are you okay if his answer is no? I love you all. Thanks for coming.